Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Hello and welcome to this new series of Bookmark, the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. Hope you've all had a great and safe summer catching up on your reading. And we're kicking off this new series with a fabulous show. Our featured guest is Jill Dawson talking about her new novel, The Bewitching. We'll hear from children's book writer and illustrator Rebecca Patterson about the challenges of publishing and Penny Hancock will be chatting about her latest novel, The Choice. But Jill will give you a proper introduction in just a moment. But first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you, Lee. Lovely to be here as ever. And as I say, a programme with a local slant. I know you're very connected to the landscape around here, the fens. It's featured in a lot of your novels. But are you originally from this area? I'm not. No, I'm not from the Fens. I'm from the north of England, Durham, and then I lived in Yorkshire and Staffordshire. But this is the place that seems to have captured my heart. There's something about the landscape where I live, north of Ely, and the stories that are told here really, really has got in deep. So it's a place I love. And the landscape itself allows you to do certain things, doesn't it? There's sort of the hidden mysterious nature of the landscape you can use you can I mean the idea that um, it's reclaimed land as everyone knows lots of it would have been underwater especially the fens where I'm writing about that makes for a great mystery but I think also that huge sky that sense of emptiness the lack of clutter it's a bit like a blank page that's the way it seems to impress on my imagination and in this novel in particular the isolation of the village that you're in and the fear or the superstition around the landscape the creatures and the plants in it well let's say where it is for our local listeners all will know war boys so it's not really where I am it's about 40 minutes closer to Huntingdon So it would have been a place in the 16th century that was surrounded by Fen. It was higher ground, Warden of the Woods, Warden of the Bois. That's what the name Warboys meant, I discovered. So it was kind of a lookout point. Very isolated, as you say, a little bit like Ely itself, which is also was an island, a sort of higher ground with the cathedrals. So religion absolutely dominating. That's my picture of this area in the 16th century. Does it feel like it's... Well, it has changed a lot, hasn't it, over there? Because there's been the drainage for a start. It has changed a lot, but many of the themes and the kind of struggles and concepts I'm unearthing seem to me common enough. I mean, if we think about ideas of neighbours taking against one another and let's say Brexit brought out quite a lot of that, didn't it? Um, The feeling that we didn't necessarily know if we could trust one another during the pandemic. I think there was a great anxiety about who's obeying the rules, who's wearing a mask, who's being vaccinated. And so mistrust of our neighbours seems to me to be a more intensely felt experience in a smaller community or a rural community than in a city. I'm looking forward to talking to you about the bewitching, but let's hear your first choice of music. Is music important to you? Music's important to me, yes. And and I often listen to music when I'm writing, which I know is strange for some people. But generally, I just play something over and over until it's not quite going in. But it's helping me, really. It's helping me to get into the writing zone. So Frank Sinatra, I've long loved and often sing along to. My son um, has quite a deep voice, and he and I used to sing along to Frank Sinatra songs in the car. So it always makes me think of him. Those fingers in my head that sly 
come hither stare. And that was It's Witchcraft by Frank Sinatra, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Jill Dawson. Jill is the author of 11 novels, one poetry collection, and the editor of six anthologies of poetry and stories. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, has been a Costa judge, and founded the Goldust Mentoring Scheme for Writers. Her novels have been shortlisted and longlisted for a variety of awards, including the Whitbread and Orange Prize, the New Angles Prize and the Folio Prize. The Great Lover, about the poet Rupert Brooke, was a bestseller and a Richard and Judy summer read. And The Crime Writer, about the novelist Patricia Highsmith's time in Suffolk, won the East Anglian Book of the Year Award in 2016. Her latest novel, The Bewitching, published earlier this year, is set in the 16th century and based on the true story of a witchcraft case in the Fens. The Sunday Times called it compelling, and The Guardian said this novel handles its material with panache and has real slow-burning power and pace. Well, I'm going to come back to that quote about slow-burning power. But first of all, listening to that biography, Jill, your life is absolutely steeped in writing and books. Did you always want to be a writer? Was it always going to be that way? Yes, I'm one of those quite odd people, I think, who just loved reading as a little girl. It was where I had my escape, like so many of us, and very quickly started making my own little stories, my own little books, decided one night, I vividly, vividly remember this, that if I didn't become a writer, I would never be happy odd thought and I think I was around nine when I decided that so I can't honestly say where it came from I'm not from a family where there was writers or literary people in the background no one was a particular storyteller I think both of my parents had fun with language we used to sort of have a lot of jokes around I don't know puns and phrases and maybe that was something that went in but I think like lots of people most of it was just reading I absolutely loved being lost in the world of someone else's novel. And you've written a a range of novels over the years. Are there certain themes that when you look back on it, you realise keep coming to the surface? Well, the one we start out with really today, the one thinking about landscape and place, that seems pretty important. And possibly because I have lived in so many different counties and I've also lived in America. And so the idea of the impact of a place on a person That seems to be where I start very often. Another theme, I guess, because it's in The Bewitching and it's in the novel just before The Language of Birds, also set partly in the Fens, is the theme of violence against women and domestic violence. I think I've written at least two other novels, Trick of the Light and arguably Lucky Bunny, deal with that theme as well. So that one does recur. But generally speaking, I'm not someone enchanted by the same sort of spell or circle of interest there is something else going on for me where I'm often reaching into an area I don't know much about or looking for a new challenge rather than revisiting something that haunts me which I feel is occasionally when I'm reading another writer that's what I feel is going on and it's not a criticism I often love to read someone's whole body of work and see how they've explored a theme in in so many different ways. And quite a few of the novels based on true stories, as is this one, The Bewitching. When, when did you first come across this story? I came across this because of a novel by a friend of mine, Kate Pullinger, called Weird Sister, which is set in Warboys and tells exactly the same story, but doesn't really go into the 16th century. She sets it in the 20th century as a kind of haunting. So one of the witches comes back. I knew that novel and I didn't know much about the original story it was based on. 
true story. So I asked Kate, did she mind if I wrote about it? Because in a way, I did feel as if it was her discovery and her novel. And she's very generous. And, and she said at once, no, no, you must. So then I began researching it, looking up nonfiction books. There are a couple that I mention in the back of the novel that are available. But there's also a pamphlet, much, much more interesting to me in a way, because it was written in 1593 a couple of years after these events took place. And so that's the one I became obsessed with and sort of trying to learn how it was perceived at the time, I suppose, and what were the obsessions of those writing the pamphlet. And what were your other source materials? Did you have any other source materials from that time? It was difficult. I had lots and lots of broader books about witchcraft. We are lucky enough to have um, a huge variety now of witchcraft studies, which I think weren't available, say, 50 years ago. It's a very blossoming field, really. And there were other cases I could look at. So, for example, the Salem Witch Trials has much in common with the War Boys story. But it's 100 years later. And, of course, it takes place in America. The thing it has in common is it's also girls having these fits and seizures and accusing neighbours and members of their own community, mainly women, of being witches. So that's the part that's very, very similar. Yes, we should perhaps say what the story is about. The Bewitching tells the story of the Witches of War Boys. 1589, um, a family new to War Boys, the Throckmorton family, has five daughters aged from eight to 16. And one of the youngest girls, Jane, starts to have these quite severe fits. A neighbour visits the house, their next door neighbour, in fact, a woman called Alice Samuel. And seemingly from nowhere, Jane just suddenly says, there's the witch. Have you ever seen one who looks more like a witch than she? If the pamphlet is to be believed, it really does seem as if this just comes out of the blue. Nothing went before it. There's no prior interaction. Now, that's the bit I found intriguing. Why did this girl accuse the neighbour of being a witch? What did the neighbour do to provoke that? Is there any backstory or possible connection? What were the tensions in the family or in the community that would lead to such a thing? And that's where my exploration goes. And that's in a way, I suppose, where I deviate from the, the truthful story of the past. Although I do stick largely to the fact. And if you quickly looked it up on Wikipedia, or if you were concerned to know what happened to the witches, what happened to the girls, you know, I more or less stick to the facts as I receive them in the pamphlet. And it is a slow burn, as uh, The Guardian described, because it's almost a forensic piecing together of how you could get to a situation where a woman could be accused of that, because it's all subjective, isn't it? There's no objective evidence. No, I think for a modern reader, I was very aware that the ideology, the way that religion prevailed, the way that everyone was steeped in the church and had to attend church would have a massive impact on how they all felt and that a belief in witchcraft was generally held. Most people would. And so trying to understand that and understand that people weren't going, well, witches, they don't exist, but instead were going, oh, we've got one in our own community. That was the interesting bit. And also the slow burn aspect was looking at, I mean, when you have a true story and you know what the ending is, and I often know from the start that it's going to go from bad to worse. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that here. You you can look it up and you can see what happens. So you have to keep your reader interested enough and involved enough to hope that it might not go in this awful direction. And I think that's the tension 
I'm playing with is wanting the reader to invest really in my main characters, Martha in particular, the narrator, and also Alice Samuel, the witch, and to a lesser degree, her daughter, and wanting them to hope it doesn't turn out as bad as they fear. And what is it then? I mean, you sort of allude that it could be fear of women, fear of women's sexuality, the fact that Alice had a little bit of power because she uh, knew some herbal medicines. As you say, it was a deeply religious community. Did you, you don't have to tell us because it's in the novel, but did you come to an overall conclusion? Well, where I started with, I read, you know, the various ideas for why there was this witchcraft phenomenon in those couple of hundred years, really. Why was it so intense? And there are lots of different theories. And post-Reformation, there was a great uncertainty about religion, persecution of Catholics, as you say, misogyny, fear of women. But in the end, I wanted to make it a novel, a story that held up for the characters involved. So you sort of look at the wider picture and try to take that on board. But I think you also have to look at the dynamic between the people. And that's the one I kept returning to. What was going on for the girls? Why were they accusing anyone of being a witch? Why were they pointing the finger at anyone at all? And why did they persist as they did? And why did they get bigger and bigger and more and more of the girls becoming bewitched, as it seemed? And how would it be for Alice, I suppose, as a woman? I mean, the pamphlet does make her sound much older, but I came to the conclusion, based on some other reading I was doing, that she was probably around 50. Why did she become the target for their anger or their dislike? Why do some people get rather scapegoated? Someone in the novel says, you know, it's as if she's got a sign on her back, kick me. And, you know, we all know that from sort of bullying and the idea that a bully finds a victim and, and quite easily. And it might be someone who feels vulnerable, other than the rest of the community, and in some way can be scapegoated. Which is not to say Alice is in any way to blame, but interestingly, she certainly doesn't see how bad it's becoming and doesn't really do much to help herself. She just continues being her own not very sweet self. And she's already an object of curiosity, isn't she? Because she has lived with a man outside of marriage, which would have been quite shocking then. She has. And also she has a daughter that they find rather beautiful and almost can't believe it's her daughter. And so somehow there's this idea that it's a naughty marriage. And the word naughty back then had quite a, a stronger meaning. It doesn't really feel like a word they use for children. It was more like wicked or immoral. So there's already something about Alice. And as you touched on earlier, something about power. She had a little bit of power. She was a brewer and a baker. Those facts are true. And she possibly knew some herbal medicine. In the pamphlet, they say that she wasn't invited into the household to help the family. But I wondered why they felt the need to state that and thought perhaps that's exactly it. In the first instance, they asked for her help. Their daughter's ill. Does she know anything? And then very quickly, that fact might have been covered up because it wasn't really okay in this particular moment in our history to sort of resort to that kind of cunning folk and, and sort of old ways. We were in a moment where doctors and medicine were taking over and science and rationality was supposedly the king. So her skills and powers and talents were very much turning on the cusp somehow of being treated differently. Thank you, Jill. We'll come back to you in just a moment. Let's stay with women's centred fiction and hear from Penny Hancock. 
Penny's first novel, Tideline, was published in 2012 and became a Richard and Judy book club pick. There have been four more novels since then, including I Thought I Knew You, which won the East Anglian Novel of the Year Award in 2019. Her latest, The Choice, came out in July. When I spoke to Penny, she told me where the inspiration for the novel came from. I'll tell you what the opening incident is. It's a grandmother who forgets to pick her grandchild up from school. When she arrives there, she discovers he's gone and she covers up where she was when she should have been picking him up. This idea of not picking your child up from school, I mean, this is a parent's worst nightmare. We've all had those dreams where we've suddenly thought that we've left our child waiting in the playground for us. Yeah, it happens to us all, but I think it's worse when it's not your child. So in this case, it wasn't her child. It did happen to me. I once offered to pick up a friend's child from school. And on that day, my son, who was eight at the time, was ill. So he wasn't at school. So I completely forgot I was picking up the friend's child. And she rang me about half an hour after I should have been there. And I just went into sort of total panic mode, ran up to the school. He'd gone, the child had gone. So my heart was sort of in my mouth. The mother, fortunately, a friend of mine who might listen to this, was really kind about it and kept saying, don't worry, he'll be somewhere. But I was really mortified and terrified. In fact, he'd walked home to my house on his own and it was all fine. But I've never forgotten that. And it was just awful moment. So this was kind of based on that for ages I struggled with this idea about writing about someone who forgets to pick up a child and the child goes missing but I couldn't find a shape for it so when I struck on the idea of it being her grandchild and her daughter the one who actually can't forgive her it kind of unleashed a whole story and it's a grandchild because this is our central character Renee yeah. is at a particular point in her life she's dealing with lots of family issues but she's also dealing with her bodily changes as well she's going through the menopause great to see a character (laughs) dealing with that and going through those issues. I mean, I suppose my writing kind of goes in step with my own life stages and people have started writing about the menopause and it's talked about a lot more now than it was. I just want to make it real and this is what a lot of women's lives are like and this woman has three children, she's got one grandchild, she's got an elderly mother, a lot of people are in that situation where they're caring for elderly parents. She's got a husband who's not been well so she's also caring for him. And she's also dealing with having hot flushes and losing her mind a little bit, which you can feel like when you're going through the menopause. So I just wanted to reflect somebody, yeah, real. And this uh, setting for it, it's on a, an island and an estuary and the landscape beautifully described and Thank very you. important. I haven't named it the place because I don't live there and I didn't want to get the details wrong but it's set on an island just off the Essex coast which is cut off when there's a high tide and when there's a very high tide it's completely cut off so I also wanted to play with that idea that if she was late getting back to the island and the tide was up she wouldn't be able to get there just impossible but I visited it obviously and I've got friends who live there and it's just a beautiful place it's Mersey Island and the idea of things appearing and disappearing yeah. and secrets. Yeah, I mean, I've always played with that idea, as you know, like in Tideline, that was quite a, a motif. It wasn't really conscious, I just seemed to do that. But I also love tidal estuaries, I find them really atmospheric. And what genre would you say this is? I think it falls between psychological suspense and family drama. It's not really a crime novel because there isn't really a crime. There's a mistake, um, there are lots of mistakes, lots of buried secrets... And there's a family estrangement. So I think it's more of a family drama than a 
psychological thriller. And what is it about that particular genre that interests you? Because you do keep coming back to it in one form or another, family tensions and choices that women have. I just find families really, really interesting in all their different guises. And one of the things about this book is it starts off, the family seems to be quite a conventional family, but it ends up, as you'll find, in a different pattern. The family changes shape completely. So I'm just interested in, in real lives and the psychology of relationships and complex relationships. The other thing that really inspired this was the mother-daughter relationship. I struggled to write another book about that and it hadn't really gone anywhere, so I wanted to make that a bit of a central focus, the relationship between a mother and her grown-up daughters. And she's a grandmother, our central character, and I know that you've become a grandparent recently. Congratulations. Thank you. Did that influence your choices? I know it sounds really, really unlikely, but I wrote this before I became a grandmother and before I even knew I was going to become a grandmother. So I kind of guessed how it would feel... But the reality is even more overwhelming. I mean, I guess that you might feel a more kind of visceral love for your grandchild than you do for your children because you're more able to kind of maybe recognise it because you're one step back. But um, the reality is I've been totally bowled over by how I feel about my grandchildren. I've got two now. A lovely friend of mine who's Jordanian said to me, there's a saying in Jordan, which is more dear than the child is the child's child. So obviously that's a recognised thing. I didn't know that at the time. But I think those feelings that you have for your child's child are really unprecedented. I'd never experienced those before. And having a child in possible jeopardy, which we have for some of Mm. the book, what are the kind of ethics and morals as a writer around that, do you think? Because there's been a lot of thought about putting women in jeopardy in uh, thrillers. Do you think the same thing applies in this case? I have real problems about putting children in real jeopardy Without spoiling the book, the child disappears, but he's safe. I don't think that's a big spoiler. I couldn't have a child come to any real harm. And that's not a moral or an ethic decision. That's just because I can't bear to go there. And I also am a slightly superstitious person, so I'm afraid of writing things and then them happening. So I avoid that. So given that you don't like to go into certain areas, is this your genre now, psychological thriller? Because you do have to explore difficult areas or family dramas in these kinds of books. I haven't got any problem with exploring complicated relationships, people being unkind to each other because they've got some issue going on in their lives. But I don't do violence or really bloody deaths or any of that stuff. And what's next for you then? What are you working on? Um, Well, I'm working on something now and I don't know if you'll ever see the light of day, but it's actually about five friends who were students together and they decide to set up a house to share in their old age to kind of confront their older years. And it's about secrets that emerge when they all live together in their older years, partly set in the 80s and partly set in contemporary world. And The Choice by Penny Hancock is published by Mantle. We're speaking on Bookmark today to Jill Dawson about her novel, The Bewitching. Uh, Jill, speaking there to Penny about the menopause, her central character, going through the menopause. Age and youth, puberty and menopause, very important in The Bewitching, almost set against one another, actually, almost at odds. Yes, yes. The girls are all in one sort of hormonal moment and Alice Samuel the Witch is in another one. It did feel to me in my research about witchcraft that it very much played a part. You know, we all know that a certain amount of cantankerousness, let's say, or outspokenness, or women saying what they think and not holding back, not sweetening their words, was often something witches were accused of. And very likely a menopausal woman, a postmenopausal woman, you know, not really caring any longer to be sweet or be polite, if ever she was. I'm not sure Alice Samuel's the sort of person who ever was. But it feels to me that 
did play its part in her downfall, just as a rather heightened atmosphere for the young women all going through different stages of puberty and being very locked up in their house, supposedly reading the Bible all the time, but actually reading these rather lurid witchcraft pamphlets. That would make for a very strange hothouse atmosphere. And my thinking there was, if you're on a train with a bunch of girls, I don't think it's out of order to say that sometimes the noise level is extraordinary. There's something about shrieking and shouting and noise. I was sort of thinking about that, about having five daughters and how noisy that might feel. Thinking about the kind of energies going on and people's understanding of them. So in the novel, I peppered it with lots of phrases I found from the 16th century. A woman like a clock never runs true or a German ship or ever needs improving. You know, just loads of them I found, which were basically all a million different ways to say how flawed and problematic we are. And it felt to me that that atmosphere pervaded this pointing out and discovering of witches. And you say outspoken, the spoken word, the power of the spoken word at that time, an accusation once it was made could be devastating. Yes. And even more devastating for poor Alice was that the girls being of a different class to her, their word was taken very seriously. They were the squire's daughters. He was the squire of war boys. No one was going to challenge whether his daughters were just making things up. Then later, when Lady Cromwell becomes involved, another kind of power struggle ensues. And for Alice, again, the fact that she speaks back to Lady Cromwell, she squares up to her. She doesn't kind of doff her cap. Actually, in the very first scene, not doffing her cap is very much what the problem is. Alice doesn't take off her black knitted hat. And that's what the daughter is pointing out, as if to say, how, almost how dare you come into my fancy home and not take your hat off. So there is a lot in there also about class and those struggles. And that, I suppose, is the theme in my work that does recur. Well, let's hear your second choice of music now, which is Nina Simone. And I put a spell on you. Why this one, if it's not obvious? It's very obvious, isn't it? But I do love anything by Nina Simone. I've actually been to see her at Ronnie Scott's long, long ago and always wonderful to try and sing along with. I mean, who can? But this beautiful song I used to love in my sort of early 20s and I think describes exactly how we feel about being enchanted by someone and under their spell. I put a spell on you. Cause you're mine. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. And we're talking on Bookmark today to Jill Dawson about her novel, The Bewitching. Jill, you've sort of already alluded to this, but this period of time that you're talking about, 1589 to 91, an uneasy time, lots of paranoia around people spying on one another, fear of being found out if you're practicing a different religion or even 
thinking about it or have the habits of it. Yes, the habits of it. They would die hard, wouldn't they, as well? It would be very hard not to want to resort to what you used to do. And when that is banned from you, I mean, simple things like praying to saints or lighting a candle to a saint would have become taboo. And very simple practices of Catholicism. I was really struck in researching this novel because I went to Ramsey where there, you know, had once been this beautiful monastery and at Chatteris there'd been a fantastic nunnery and thinking how all of these things were destroyed. And we went round Hinchingbrook, which is now a school, but would have been the home of Sir Henry Cromwell, the character in my novel, one of his homes. He had a summer home and a winter home. The young person showing us round said, oh, yes, it's haunted in this particular room. People say that whenever we try and do any work here, the monks throw the tools around. I love that little detail Mm. of a haunting. So in my novel, this idea that Sir Henry Cromwell and his father, in fact, Richard Cromwell, the nephew of Thomas Cromwell, architect of the dissolution of the monasteries, that the monks were angry and cast out. And so were the nuns. And where would the people go? And in particular, where would the nuns go? Because the monks and um, the abbot were offered sums of money and often given homes, but the nuns weren't. So in the novel, it's quite crucial that one of the characters is a foundling, Martha, the narrator, and raised by a nun who she loves very much and feels very devoted and grateful to. And I did think a lot about these poor women who were, you know, left in absolute abject poverty and had to find their way. That was behind sort of in a way that storyline or that character development. Yeah, so it's told from Martha's point of view and then from a third-person point of view. Why did you have that structure? You know, Lee, you'll know yourself as a writer. You start with one thing and you often move into another. I did begin rather faithfully in the third person, recreating the pamphlet. Then that became insufficient. I needed a closer up look, someone in the household who could see both sides. And that's very much Martha because she's the servant. She's the putative nanny for the girls. She's both of the poor working class peasant world because that's her origins but she belongs now to the Throckmorton family she's very loyal to them so that gave me this this sort of dual possibility for my narrator and I also gave her my own deafness I'm deaf in one ear partially deaf increasingly so I wasn't always and so as the years have gone by and I've got more and more deaf I've realized how much time I spend looking at people or trying to understand things in case I've missed something you know the slight sense of oh did something go over my head there so I gave Martha this partial deafness to almost exaggerate how she has to learn things in other ways she has to try very hard to listen when she can but also come to her own conclusions sometimes and realize that she might not have heard something or she's missed something and you mentioned Hinchingbrook what about war boys in war boys is there any sign of what happened It's really interesting to go. I mean, the pond is still there where a lot of my action (laughs) takes place in the novel. The church is there, St. Mary's Church. It used to be called St. Mary of the Blessed Virgin, and it was changed to St. Mary Magdalene, which gives you another example of how it wasn't okay to worship the Blessed Virgin. A beautiful church with a 14th century font really interesting to go around all these little gargoyles and (laughs) carved faces which do occur in the novel and the house the squire's house it's 
been altered. It has these Dutch gables that it wouldn't have had. But it's in the same location and it's very easy to see how close it was to the church. The children would indeed have been hearing the bells ringing all the time. And their uncle was the vicar at the next door church. And all of this would have had an impact on their standing in more boys and the feeling that they mustn't transgress or they mustn't be seen to be, as Alice accuses them, wanton. But she means by that deceiving deceiving and lying. And a small community. So an accusation such as that that's made against Alice would have had massive repercussions. It would. And I quickly show, because I feel that the information I have demonstrated this, that not many people stood up for her, that they quickly became afraid that it would be them next. So she does have neighbours and friends mentioned in the novel, Cecily Birder, who was a real person that was mentioned in the pamphlet. But there's no sense in which these people defended Alice. Instead, like so many do in a situation like this, they put their head down and hoped that these accusations wouldn't come their way. Do you think we can learn anything about this story for today? I think there's plenty, unfortunately, that do reflect in our lives today and don't reflect well on us. I mean, this idea of scapegoating an individual, the idea of a a kind of accusation gathering pace without much basis. We do see that happening. Public shaming is still a part of life today, although we do it differently. We might use social media rather than the stocks, let's say, as they used to then. But it probably has exactly the same power and painfulness to lose one's name or reputation as much as to have a threat of a prison case or even an execution. But just even the threat of your good name, I think, is very terrifying now as then. Thank you, Jill. We'll come back to you in just a moment, but we'll hear from Rebecca Patterson, author and illustrator. Rebecca received an MA in children's book illustration from the Cambridge School of Art and had her first picture book commissioned at the end of the course. Since then, she's authored and illustrated more than 12 books for children, including My Big Shouting Day, which won the Roald Dahl Funny Prize. When I met Rebecca, we started by talking about how she became interested in illustration before the conversation took an unexpected turn. I always loved picture books. And when I was growing up in Bolton, I'd go to the local library and you could get four picture books out. And I can remember all those books in the 70s. And I think growing up in the 70s, it was a really fantastic, weird time for children's picture books. Really strange books like um, books about nuns going on strange travels, the most bizarre picture books, Barber Papa. And I just loved them. I also loved Mabino. <laughs> so, and um, the Charles Adams cartoons so I think as a child I think the dream would have been a cartoonist or anything with pictures and words I was one of those kids that like making magazines doing the adverts the kind of kid who'll sit in their bedroom making up worlds out of Lego and Russian dolls and brick houses and that is telling stories still like doing it you know, I, still, I still like playing in my head so I think it's I don't know, is it arrested development? Just keep on doing it. Slightly addicted to it. How did you go from that to developing your own style? I've always found my drawing quite weird. If I look at pictures I did in the sort of school magazine, I have a style, but I'm not sure it's... I feel about uncomfortable with my style of drawing, so I don't think it's quite there even yet. And certainly in picture books, picture books are quite prescriptive. So you've got book designers saying, oh, you know, can you put flowers on this? Can you make her head shape different? Cutifying the picture. So in my own time, 
I draw quite aggressive cartoons <laughs> just to just to release that tension. That's the real you. Yeah, that's the real me. And you know, I'll draw quite bitchy cartoons at home or entertain my family drawing rude pictures about people. And it's a very competitive. It is very competitive, and they want to translate your books into co editions, so it has to sell. They're very worried if you don't get a co edition for a picture book. What does that mean, co-edition? That means a foreign a foreign publisher will also take it and translate it. And for picture books, that's key. I had one editor say, if I can't sell this in America and one other European country, we can't take it because the printing costs are so high. So that puts pressure on you as a, as an artist to uh, yes to work within that environment. What what is that like? How does that affect what you do? It's really tricky. I'm sure it's the same in text too that you have editors saying, could you change this? And I think in any writing, it's that balance of how much am I going to compromise to get this book under the wire and published. And I look back on the work I've done and quite often I'm thinking, I wish I hadn't allowed that to happen. I wish they hadn't done that with the font. I wish they hadn't done that with the colour palette. You know, when you do something as an artist, you always think, oh, that is just terrible. <laughs> you know, when you finish something, you hate it because you can see all the problems in it. And with a lot of my picture books looking back now, I'm thinking, I, I wish I hadn't allowed it. I wish I hadn't said yes to that blue colour or them photoshopping that bit because the book designer takes your work and will do bits her end. Or It's nice because it's team, but it's also difficult because a lot of the time you're, you're raging on a Friday evening because you've got an email, you know, Friday five o'clock from a book designer saying, could you maybe make her more feminine or could you possibly... <laughs> Stuff like that. But that's really sad that you that you look back on your work and you, you're saying, I don't like it. I really. don't think it's sad. I think if you're a... If you're a a writer or a painter or an illustrator, you're always trying to get it better. If you're happy, then you won't do any more, will you? I think that the drive comes from trying to perfect what you're doing. Do you think there's more pressure in children's books than there perhaps are in uh, adult novels? I don't novels? know. I don't know because I haven't written a novel. All I know is typing's easier than drawing. Because I've done chapter books of about 20,000 words. And the typing part, that's fine. The writing, <laughs> the drawing is the real roughs. And also book designers saying things like, oh, we really like page four, but could you change your perspective? And think, well, I'm not a camera. I have to redraw the whole thing from another way. The drawing does seem harder than the writing. And so at what point do you think, actually, they know more about this than me? Is that what it is, essentially, a battle of who knows this best rather than something I don't artistic? know if they always do know it best. And going back to that period in the 70s when people had that real freedom, I think those books are better. And not patronising children. I think now a lot of books are really bland and treat children like they are silly. In what way? They don't want any horror. They don't want anything spooky. They don't want anything dark. But I work in a primary school and I know children love dark and spooky stuff. And children, we, all, you know, we don't want our novels to be edited down to complete blandness. So why do children? So what do you do? I mean, you sound quite disillusioned. I don't know what I do. I'm at a point now where I'm thinking, I pitched a book early this year and it nearly got bought. And then I got the classic editor's email back like, yeah, we, we will take it on if you change blah, if you make this blah, if you change this ending, we feel that's a bit down, blah, blah. And I looked at it and thought, I don't know if I can jump through any more of these hoops to do this. Just would you self-publish? Is it possible to do that with picture books? I wouldn't because what you get with a publisher is you get their sales teams, you get the people who can go to book fairs. I think with self-publishing, you can end up with a garage full of books, can't you, that you can't, can't get rid of. 
And is this something that all illustrators, uh, I mean, or is there a kind of hierarchy of illustrators? You know, will people say this to Quentin Blake? I don't know. I, it's for like movie stars, isn't it? If you're a, a big person, you're probably given more license. I do know if illustrators get together, it's quite a gossipy, bitter crowd. <laughs> because in theory, I would have thought you had so much control because you do the words and the pictures. You don't, because they're trying to sell. They're trying to sell loads of books. So you don't make a living as an illustrator. I kind right? of do from one book, but it is only one book out of thirteen that actually makes money. Which is the book? My Big Shouting Day. And, and why that, is it that one? Do you because think? it sold in China. And how far in your career was that one? I did the Angley Ruskin MA, and it was my final project. So that came out in 2012. That was a great start. It was, and it's a bit... And then you always want to think, well, how do I recreate that? And you can't... You can't recreate it. And looking back, I think how I did it was actually not sweat it, because what I was doing on that MA was learning to draw, and I thought, I just can't draw buildings. I can draw people, but I can't draw buildings. I'm going to use this MA to learn to draw. And I had a great project called the Sequential Image Project. We had to create a series of pictures that just flowed together. And I thought, well, I'll do buildings. So I'd do suburban streets or on Cambridge, swimming pools, supermarkets, just to get my perspective going and buildings. And then I came to the end of the course thinking, well, I've just got buildings. How am I going to show this as my final show as a picture book? I thought, well, I know if I put a little shouting toddler, because I had one at the time, if I put a shouting <laughs> toddler through these scenes, then I can draw the big tower blocks. There'll just be a tiny little shouting kid in every shot. I don't know what the story is. And then as it went on, the buildings sort of shrunk away and the shouting toddler took over the work. But I didn't sit down and think, I want to write a book about toddlers having tantrums. And I think maybe that is where the best work comes from, that subconscious. And it was obviously something in it that resonated yes, with people. Yes, yes. But it didn't come from a conscious place. It came from a sort of, well, I'll have to get these pictures of buildings out and stick a toddler in. So what happens now then, Rebecca? It sounds like you're at this kind of crisis balancing point. Well, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to sort of get back to that playing I talked about and just taking time off trying to write a book, trying to sit down and sell something because constantly pitching and selling is demoralising and tiring and I feel I need to recapture that childlike play in creating and last night I started making a small doll because I thought I just need to come away from drawing. And when I'm a bit don't in drawing, I'll make a little thing, either a little house or a teeny dolly, just to take my mind away from that. And My Big Shouting Day by Rebecca Patterson is published by Jonathan Cape. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Jill Dawson about her novel The Bewitching, published by Scepter. Jill, Rebecca there, disillusioned uh, with publishing, really, thinking about giving up writing. Have you ever felt that frustrated that you've sort of not doing it anymore? I wonder if because I have been doing it for so long and had quite a lot of years, I would say between the age of 21 and 34 when I was trying to publish, those were years where I felt as if I was knocking on doors, not earning much money from my writing, getting lots of rejections. So I feel as if the years I've had since the 11 novels being with Scepter, which is a very fabulous for me continuity of publisher, editor and agent. And I do feel lucky and privileged. I feel as if I've had exactly the kind of life I wanted and I don't feel comfortable complaining about it. I know that writers struggle and I know it's a tough world out there. And I run a mentoring scheme that 
tries to help those who want access to that world or help people to write the novels they want to write. But I always do emphasize that for me, the joy is in the writing. The publishing is quite a brief part of the experience. I mean, we mentioned that my book came out this summer. It's very quickly over the publishing part. So it feels to me you have to really, really enjoy the writing. It's not the going around literary festivals and talking about your book. That's a very small part. Whether one can make a living and whether that's properly made realistic on MAs in creative writing, I no longer know since I don't teach on them anymore, but I did. And I do think there's a kind of tension perhaps between suggesting writing as a vocation, as something to fulfill oneself, even as some way to live a happier life, and writing as a commercial enterprise. And the two are perhaps always going to be in some kind of tension and opposition. Was that one of the reasons you set up Goldust, your mentoring scheme, to help people to navigate this world? It was one reason. I think the main reason, it's quite a while since I set it up now, was I realised that the one thing I'd longed for when I was starting out was a, a writer, a published writer to talk to, who knew all the ins and outs, who was further along than me. And I didn't know how to access that. I actually did an MA um, in Sheffield in order to access it and was very pleased to have the writer, for example, Jane Rogers as my tutor, who now mentors for Goldust. But I didn't feel I had enough time with Jane, if I'm honest. I would have happily paid just to talk to her and have her read my novel. And that's what with Goldust we offer. So back then, I mean, there's lots of mentoring schemes now, but back then I couldn't find anything that replicated what I had wanted. And another thing to say is that my background, you know, no one in my family, as I, as I began by saying, was a writer. No one was a literary agent. We didn't know any writers. It wasn't a world. I had any means of entering. And I felt that keenly. And so often with my mentees, I get that feeling too, that they would like to have that sense of belonging to this world. And why not? That seems very realizable and realistic to me. And so what's next for you? As you say, the bewitching's out. You're still on the tail end of promoting that. What's next? I always give myself a little break so that I'm definitely in that moment now, or quite a long break, more like a year really since I finished the bewitching. And during that time, I can feel something else forming. So I'm, I'm running a course in September, Dive In, which I've run before, where it's a Zoom course where I invite writers to kind of write their novel with one meeting a month on Zoom. And I share my practice. So I plan to start my new novel with everyone else on that date. But it will be a very, very slow start. It's a sort of year, two years before I've really got anything to show for myself. And a question we ask all our guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I'm reading a fantastic book, but it is a little slow for me because I'm having to reread every page, really, to get the most from it. It's called Sacred Nature by Karen Armstrong, a nun. We were talking about nuns earlier. Karen is no longer a nun, but she started life as a nun, who is talking about our urgent need to reconnect with nature, with the natural world, the climate crisis that we're in. She suggests we've kind of got it all wrong really centuries of patriarchy and disconnection and so that speaks to me that's very much at the heart of what I was thinking when I was writing The Bewitching and I'm loving this book as I say it's rather thought-provoking so it's taking me a while 
Sounds great. Uh, well, we'll come back to you in just a moment for your last choice of music. But a heads up on the next show, our featured guest is Lucy Ward talking about her book, The Empress and the English Doctor, How Catherine the Great Defeated a Deadly Virus. Very topical. Neurobiologist William Harris will be talking about his book, Zero to Birth, How the Human Brain is Built. And Sam Miller will be chatting about his first poetry collection, Retail Park. But we'll sign out now, Jill, with your last choice of music, which is A Case of You by Joni Mitchell. Why this one? Joni Mitchell, I love her with all my heart. Been listening to her since I was 18. Her voice just, I find, transporting. And this particular song, I have a great love for Canada, the West Coast, the Pacific Northwest, where I've lived. And this takes me there. Just before our love got lost, you said... I am as constant as a northern star, and I said. You're tuned to Cambridge 105 Radio.